Good morning, church family. Uh, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open those to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. And today we go back to our series in the Gospel of John. We took a month break to kind of unpack doctrine and theology. We spent four weeks just answering the question, who is God? And then today we return, and where we pick up in the Gospel of John, we are right in the middle of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And today we're really kind of examining verses 6 through 19, and then we will explore verses 20 through 26. But I do not plan to read all of those verses today, because I, I do want you to stay awake today. Uh, that would be a bit long for our scripture reading, so what I want you to do is just follow along with me. Today we'll read verses 20 through 26. I'm using the New American Standard Version, and you can follow along in your text if you want to, or I'll have the scripture up here as well. Jesus is speaking and praying here, and this is the part three of his prayer. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So who is he talking about in verses 20 through 26? That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be in us, so that, result, so that the world may, what, believe that you sent me. The glory which, which, which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we, the triune nature of God, are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Sorry about that, guys. I'll read in my text. The glory which you have given to me, verse 22, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given to me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. Thank you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you that we can just gather together through, through elements to remember what you have done for us on the cross and Lord, I just pray that we would acknowledge you here this morning, that we would acknowledge that the Lord is near, that the Lord is here, and that you are working through your spirit and through your word to change our lives. Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, that, that you would convict their hearts to believe and to be saved and have eternal life. We thank you for this church. We lift it all up to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So... We pick up where we left off back in the month of January, and today we pick up in John chapter 17. But this morning, I would like to talk to you about the seeds. These are popcorn seeds, and my wife told me to make sure that this Pyrex this returns home, okay? Um, but these, I would like to talk to you about the seeds of discord and the seeds of unity. The seeds of discourse and the seeds of unity. Because Jesus today prays for those who are disciples of his disciples, for us today. And he prays for the seeds of discords and for the seeds of unity. But first, let me just ask you the question, how many of you uh, remember a guy named uh, Jay Leno? Okay, okay. most of us, he has that big chin, okay, if you, that's like his distinctive thing. 
Um, but he used to have this thing on his Tonight Show called Jaywalking. And my dad loved Jay Leno. He watched it every night. But he had this thing called Jaywalking. And he would walk up, if you remember, to random people on the street. And he would ask them, we would say, you know, simple questions. Okay, ones that we would probably all know. Uh, I watched some of them last night on YouTube. And, and one time, one question he had was, to name a country that borders the United States. There are only two, right? And then some woman said she thought Europe did. Which is two, has two problems, but... I would imagine if I walked up to a random Christian like Jay Leno on Jaywalking and I asked them a question, if Jesus only prayed one thing for you, if Jesus only prayed one thing from you, what would you want it to be? Imagine even in this room, if I went up to you and asked, if Jesus only prayed one thing for you, what would it be? I would imagine I would get a host of different answers. Some of us in here would probably ask for health and wealth. Some of us may ask for a spouse or children. Some of us would ask for happiness or a new job or some more hair, as in my case. But today, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays for you. He prays for those that would be disciples from his disciples. And what he prayed for us today, the church, 2,000 years later, what he prayed for us is many of us would not even have on our top ten prayer requests that we hoped Jesus would pray. But his prayer request for you and me is very critical for our spiritual well-being and for our spiritual growth. Some 2,000 years ago, on the road to the Mount of Olives, Jesus prays not only for himself, but for his disciples and for us today. Something that we often overlook in our spiritual journey, but that is absolutely important for our spiritual growth. What is the one request that Jesus prays for us today? That is my question. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open to John chapter 17. John 17, and as I've already mentioned, there are really three parts to this one chapter. This is the longest prayer of Jesus' ministry that's recorded in the gospel accounts. But as we dive in deep into John chapter 17, let us kind of quickly remember where we are in the story of the gospel of John. If you remember John 13 through 16, something called the Upper Room Discourse, but that name is a bit misleading if you remember, because at the end of chapter 14, Jesus gets up and he leaves the Upper Room headed to the Mount of Olives. So where we are in John chapter 17, Jesus has already left the Upper Room. He is in the streets of Jerusalem. He is walking toward the garden on top of the Mount of Olives. But the name Mount of Olives is a bit misleading because it's not really much of a mountain, it's not even the size of a mountain of, like, Montesano here. The Mount of Olives is really a dirt hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus heads towards this mount, or this dirt hill, out east of the city of Jerusalem. And on that mountain, there's something called the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is a garden of olive trees. Some scholars believe that there is a tree that is still alive today in the Garden of Gethsemane that was present when Jesus was arrested. And there Jesus heads, waiting for his friend, turned foe, to find him, arrest him, and have him crucified. So where we are in John chapter 17 is that this is the night that Jesus is arrested. Jesus takes a moment and he prays and he waits in the garden for Judas's snare. Judas, the heel of the Bible, sells his Savior out for 30 pieces of silver or modern day $1,000. 
And in John 17, Jesus heads to, through the streets of Jerusalem to the garden to wait for Judas. Now, this thought just came into my mind. If you knew within a couple of hours that your best friend would sell you out for a thousand dollars, if you knew it for sure, what would you do in those final moments? Maybe we would pray for mercy from God, but I seriously doubt that we would even think about praying, but we would probably panic in distress or in depression. But here, Jesus takes time, and he, and he prays for three different groups of people. Verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples, the 11 people that are left. And then he prays in verses 20 through 26, he prays for us. So, kind of to give you an idea of what I plan to do today. Today we're just taking apart uh, part 2 and part 3 of Jesus' prayer. I'm going to examine verses 6 through 19, and then we will explore verses 20 through 26. So if you have your text, go to John chapter 17. I want you to kind of just look at John 17 with me, particularly part 2. And if you look at part 2, verses 6 through 19... This whole section, he prays for his disciples, but it really, this, this section breaks down into two main parts, and I'm gonna call it, verses 6 through 8 is the rebar, and I'll explain that here in just a second, the rebar of his request in verses 9 through 19. So we see the rebar in verses 6 through 8, and then 9 through 19, Jesus has three different prayer requests for his disciples. Now why do I call verses 6 through 8 rebar? I took a mission trip to Guatemala some years ago. Some of the people in this room were here with me on that trip. But in Guatemala, in that mission trip, the foundation of their buildings was reinforced with rebar. So what I see is verses 6 through 8 is kind of the foundation. It's kind of what holds together the three requests that we see in verses 9 through 19. So notice the rebar, what holds Jesus' requests together. Notice verse 6. Jesus is speaking. I have manifested your name to the men you have given to me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they have come to know everything you have given me is from you. For the words which which you gave, I have given to them, and they receive them, and truly understand that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Notice in verse 6, Jesus reflects the glory of God back to God. If you remember that in verses 1 through 5, what does Jesus do? He does not absorb any glory for himself, but reflects all of the glory of the Father right back to him. And how do we understand glory? Glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. So Jesus does not absorb it, but he reflects it back to him. And that is revealed in the word manifested. Verse 6, I have manifested your name. The Greek word for manifest there is phanero, which means to reveal or to make known. And this word is an aorist tense. Now, what does that mean? An aorist tense is a past event that is done and finished. Undefined past event. So Jesus, throughout the three years of his ministry, has made known the Father to his disciples. And what does Jesus know when he prays this? That his time is near. His time with the disciples is coming to completion. And notice the result of his manifesting the name of the Father to the men that the Father gave to him out of the world. Verse, verse 8. And they believed that you sent me. Okay. Now, if you're tired of that word believed in the Gospel of John, I mean, it's just everywhere. 
I did a little word study this week. The word believed is the Greek word pistuo, and it's used 241 times in the Gospel of John, excuse me, in the New Testament alone. And 99 times out of the 241, it's used right here in the Gospel of John. So, 99 times. In a matter of only 21 chapters. How, do the math there. What is that? About, about four times per chapter, the word believed is used. But that kind of makes sense, right? What's the theme, what's the central premise of the Gospel of John? What is the whole Gospel of John organized to prove? That, that these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing in Him, you may have life in His name. So Jesus has manifested the Father's name to His disciples, and they have believed in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and as the Son of God. And as we've talked about, and as the Gospel of John makes abundantly clear, believing in Jesus Christ is the key that opens the door to eternal life. Eternal life has been made so simple to us that we do not have to earn our way to heaven because we cannot earn it, amen? But that Jesus Christ came and He paid for my sin in full and He gave me the gift of eternal life. That if I would simply pursue, that if I would believe in Jesus Christ, then I shall have eternal life. But we have this misconception that eternal life is going to be a time, as I've mentioned in the past, filled with uh, flying through the rings of Saturn, Okay? But I don't think that at all. Because of John chapter 17, verse 3, what does that verse say? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We will spend eternal life knowing God in His infinite nature. That's why eternal life will never be boring. It's because God is infinite. We will take us infinity to learn who He truly is. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. So we see the rebar, the foundation for Jesus' request. And let us examine very quickly Jesus' three requests to his 11 disciples. Verse 11. This is his first request for the 11 disciples. Jesus says, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The word keep here in verse 11 means to preserve or to watch Jesus prays that the Father would watch or keep or to guard over the 11 disciples. Notice the relationship there that the Father has with his children, that he has with the disciples. That the Father is not some aloof, absent Father. He's not just a clockmaker that wound up the universe and let it go. But Jesus is praying that God the Father would watch over his children. What does that tell you about the very nature of God? That he is good. That he loves his children. That he didn't just save us. He didn't just redeem us. He didn't just send his son. But that he watches over us and he protects us. To fulfill Romans chapter 8 verse 28. The father is good. He's not just some absent father that lets his children go wild and run across the street to their doom. But that the father is watching us. He is protecting us. He is keeping us. He is a good father. Request number one is to keep them. Request number two is that his disciples and us would have full joy. Verse 13. But now I have come to you. And these things I speak in the world. So that. Result. Notice that. Circle that. So that they may have my joy made full. 
abundant, overflowing in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word has hated them, the world has hated them, because they were not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Let me just say something. Not only do we have a good father that keeps and preserves and protects his children, but we have a father that wants us to have full joy. He wants us to have a joy that is abundant and overflowing. Where is that in Scripture? John chapter 10, verse 10, that He has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. This is all in the Gospel of John alone. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. God is not only watching over you, but He desires for you to have and to experience the joy that only God can give. And that joy of God is not circumstantial, but it is providential. I've uh, known a lot of two different groups of people, two different groups of Christians, I should say, and I'm sure you've known a lot of these types of people. And I'm not saying this to shame anybody. It's just the reality. It's just the truth of, of Christians. I, I see either Eeyore Christians. Okay. Have you ever seen that before? Okay. Just down on their luck. Everything's terrible. Right. And then I see what I'm going to say is the plastic surgery Christians. Okay. Where they're always smiling, but you know it's fake. Okay. We've seen those two types of Christians, but that is not the joy of the Lord. That is not the joy that God has given to us. That the joy that God desires for us to have is not circumstantial. It is providential. When we have the Eeyore, and when we have the plastic surgery, always a smile on our face, but we know it's fake, okay? What are we really doing in those... Two types of circumstances. We are probably keeping our eyes on our circumstances and not on the providence of God. God has designed you to be joyful, to have a joy that is overflowing that only God can give. Our Father keeps us. He gives us full joy. But then notice verse 17. He sanctifies us. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Now notice that verse with me, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. What kind of structure is that? To me, it looked like A equals B and B equals C. Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. The word sanctify there, to be honest with you, I had no idea what that meant at the beginning of the week. That's why I do research, okay? The word sanctify there is hagiazo. It's the verbal form of to be holy. To sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. But what does that mean? That we are that we are set holy, hagiazo. It means that we are set apart from the world for God's special purpose. What is Jesus praying? That he would take the 11 disciples and set them apart, make them holy for God's special purposes. One commentator adds this, believers are set apart by means of the truth. Just as Jesus did not belong to the world system, so believers do not belong either. But they rather belong to the heavenly kingdom because of their new births. Sanctify means to be set aside for a special purpose. A believer is to be distinct from the world's sin, its world, the world's values, and its goals. You are different. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are sanctified. You are set apart for the purposes of God. That we are meant to be lights to the world. We are meant to stand out. We are meant to be different. If you, I mean to say it this way. If you blend in, you're not living the life that you were designed to live. 
So Jesus' three requests for his disciples is to keep them, for them to have full joy, and to sanctify them. That's kind of... And then you have verse 6 through 8, you have the rebar, and then you have Jesus' three requests for his 11 disciples. So we briefly examined that, and now I want to explore verses 20 through 26. But Jesus doesn't make it too complicated for us. He prays three things for the 11 disciples, but he only prays one thing for us today. One. That's it. Now let me ask you the original question this morning. If you could desire, if you could ask Jesus to pray only one thing for you, what would you ask for? What does Jesus pray for us? The one thing, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the eleven, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So who's he talking about? The disciples of the disciples. Some 2,000 years later, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is praying for you and for us as a church. In verses 20 through 26, verse 21. What's his prayer request? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I want you to notice the theme in verse 21. You really see three themes. You see that that we are to be united, and then you see the, the example of unity, but then you also see the result of our unity. They may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. But notice how these things are repeated again. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me, Father. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you that that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That is a tongue twister of epic proportions, okay? But what theme is really repeated here? You see a theme of unity repeated. You see the theme of the example of our unity repeated. And then you see the result of our unity. Verse 21. So that the result, the world may believe that you sent me. So what is Jesus' one prayer request? It is unity. That we may be one. What is the example we have? The triune nature of God. And we just talked about it for the whole month. And then notice the result of the unity. That the world may believe in Jesus. In other words, what? That the world is watching us. The world is seeing our unity, how we treat one another. The world is seeing our lives. They are watching us, whether we realize it or not. That the world is starving for truth and joy and purpose and meaning. And they are looking at a host of different areas in this world to find truth. That's why the world looks in some strange places. Can I get an amen? They just do, because they're starving for it. You're starving for it. That's why you probably believed in Jesus to begin with. Because you realize that only Him is He is the truth in life. The world is looking at us. And what do 
they see? Do they see us that we are united, that we love one another, or do they see a house divided? And notice the example of unity that is given. The glory, verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus wants us, 607 Drake Avenue, Calvary Bible Church, to be one as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. The triune nature of God is the example to us of how we should be united. That we are different, yet one. That we are co-equal in value, yet one. That we are all believers, we all serve a different gift in the body, but that we are one body in Christ Jesus. That we are meant to be united. And how the Father and the Son and the Spirit are three, yet inseparable, yet all different. We are all different, yet equal in value, one body, one entity. And what is the name of our entity? We are called the church. Why, but let's just answer the question, why is unity important? In the body, right here, Calvary Bible Church, 607 Drake Avenue. Why is unity important? We're all one body. Very good. That's number one up here. We're all one body. Number one. Number two is the world is looking at us. So our, our treatment and our gossip about other Christians, the world notices, friends. Now I'm going to tell you a story in just a second. Number three, why else is unity important? Number three, it glorifies God the Father. It reflects His very triune nature. Number four, unity is important also because it creates a harbor. It creates a harbor of growth to Christians. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this, how many of you have ever grown up in a very unstable, divided home? What's that like on an emotional level? It is chaos, right? If you've ever grown up in, in a home where there's an absentee father or where you argue with your sisters and brothers all the time, that, that is not a safe place for you to grow. That's what I want here for Calvary Bible Church, that we would be one. That we would fulfill the prayer that Jesus has for us some 2,000 years ago as he heads up to the Mount of Olives. That we would create a safe harbor for believers to grow, but also this, for non-believers to come into this room and to find love and acceptance and people to share the gospel with them so that they can have new birth and they can be created in the image of God's child. But let's just be honest here. Um, how many of you have ever, you don't have to raise your hand to this one either, how many of you have ever experienced a church not being united? How many of you have ever experienced a church split? Or when you walk into a church, you feel, <laughs> you feel like the tension in the air. Okay, I've felt that before. You know, you, you can be brand new to a church and you kind of feel the air, right? What's that, what's that like? What message does that send to the world? But more importantly, what does that send to God the Father? I would imagine a house divided against itself causes the Father's heart to grieve because it does not reflect His nature. Um, I'm just going to share a story real quick. My, as you all know, most likely, my father passed away about four months ago. And 
as he he went to ch- a church in the 90s and he saw the storm a brewing. He saw that the waves in the church were getting choppier and choppier and choppier. And then in about the year 2000, the church that he attended at the time split right down the middle. And I remember as a 15-year-old boy, and I remember this 21 years later, my dad said, if those people are just like me, then they got nothing to offer me. The world is watching us. The world is seeing if we really, truly love one another. The world is seeing if we obey the scripture. The world is seeing if we truly are one. But let's just ask the question, what what causes the seeds of discord? What causes the seeds of discord? Think about a seed. It in and of itself pretty much is useless until the right circumstances appear and the seed blossoms into a tree or to a plant. What are the seeds of unity and the seeds of discord? There's one. I'm going to say seed, not seeds, but seed of discord is one. Me. Selfishness. That selfishness is the seed of discord. It might not ever germinate because the circumstances may not be right. But when we come to church, can I just preach for a second? I'm just going to get up all the businesses today. All right. Um, when we come to church, for me, for what I want, for my personal preferences, did somebody talk to me? Did somebody, was somebody nice to me? Was the preacher's sermon good enough for me? When we come for me, that is a seed of discord. And the enemy is looking for those seeds in your life. And he wants to make sure that the circumstances are right for that seed to germinate and to cause problems. The seed of discord is selfishness. It just is. And, 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 it doesn't, and I'm not doing, trust me, I'm not doing this right here. I'm not doing this. I'm doing this. Okay. Okay. I'm doing this right here. And it goes for this guy double, right? Because if I come into the church, and I have been, I'll, I'll just admit it, I've been selfish at times. Sure. I'm not perfect. My wife will tell you that. I'm far from it. And my staff will tell you that. But when any, any of us come to church with me, me over him and we, when we come with that mentality, that is going to equal disunity. But when we come to church, when we live our lives in our homes and our neighbors for him and we over me, you'll see unity and abundant fruit of life and gospel going to the ends of the earth. The truth, the world is looking at us. Will we have the seeds of discord or will we have the seed of unity? The seed of unity is this. Him and we over me. That my preferences, my desires, what I want, what kind of sermon I want, the music that I want, is all secondary. We have an enemy out there that is desiring for for us to take our preferences and our desires, and he is fanning the flame, he is pouring water on that seed in the midst of our church to cause it to take root and for it to blossom into fruit of conflict. But we must be mindful 
We must be mindful of the desires that we have, that we would always, at any time, bridge selflessly, that we would have him and we over me. Part of my application today is really threefold. Um, one, of the, one of the things I need to be careful of at Calvary Bible Church as the pastor here is not to be uh, solely to encourage us to love God with our mind. I, I, I'm going to tell you something, man. I love the intellectual side of Christianity. I cannot get enough of it. I am like a little kid in a toy aisle when I, talk, when I think about theology and doctrine and pick up a Greek New Testament because I am super nerd, okay? But I don't want it to stop there. I don't want it to just be that we love God with the information that we have in our head because that's not what the Bible teaches. What does the Bible teach? That we shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That we should love God with our mind, knowledge, our heart, emotions, and our soul in our actions. So this is what I did this week. I, I kind of took the app, took that verse and kind of broke it out into the application section. So I started with the mind because I'm, you know, nerd. Um, and, I, and I just, and this week, I, I kind of took this theme of unity, and I just asked myself the question, okay, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. May there not be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139, verses 20 and 21. I said, search me, O Lord, is there a seed? Is there a seed of discourse in my mind and in my heart? And then I practice Psalm 51. Have you ever read that one in a while? It's a repentance psalm. Psalm of penance. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a step of spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain in me a willing spirit. And then I took action. This is what I found. When I searched my mind, I realized that when Byron gets disappointed, and that's plenty of it, right? We all get disappointed in things. That the seed is of disappointment takes root in the effort of bitterness. And then what I do is I fan that flame, and then that little seed that has taken root of disappointment, turning into bitterness, and turning into bitterness bears the fruit of dissatisfaction and frustration. So I just searched. I said, Lord, this is, my, this, is, this is my seed, my disappointment. And then I took Psalm 51, and I repented from it, and then I took action. I asked for forgiveness from people in my life that I have had bitterness towards. This is what I'm asking you today. The Lord Jesus has prayed for you to have unity, for you to set yourself aside, for you to love one another my question for you is this, is search your mind. What is a seed of discord you have in your mind and in your heart? Number two, I would encourage you, once you find that, to repent, to ask for forgiveness. It's okay to admit that we're wrong. It's, it really is okay. There's a reason why it says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We should repent of our sin. And then I'm going to encourage you one more thing. I take action. If you have bitterness towards another believer that's causing you not to want to deal with them, just talk to them about it. Because I want us, this church, not to be just known for Bible, for preaching, which I hope it's always known for that. I don't want us just to be known for a bunch of really smart people. I want us to be known also for the unity that we have and the love that we have for one another. Unity 
occurs when each of us are selfless. We're exampled by the triune nature of God, and unity can only happen until we have him and we over me. Before I close, um, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That the wages of sin, the wages of my mistakes, the wages of my own selfishness and bitterness and malice and strife and gossip, the consequence of all that, the wages are death. That we are separated from the holiness and the perfection of God the Father because of our mistakes, because of our sin. And it was initiated by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. At the very beginning of time, we were separated from God by our sin. But Christ has come and he has died for us, that if we would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord of our life, that we shall be saved. My question for you is not, do you know the truth? My question is, do you believe the truth? There's a difference between the two. Have you ever gone in here and surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord of your life? That is the question. And if you haven't, surrender. Be changed. Have the new birth. Be a new creation. You'll find joy that is not circumstantial, but that is providential. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Set us apart. Lord, you have made us different, that we are lights in the world, that we live in a dark world that does not know you, that does not know the hope of the gospel. Lord, let us be different and let us look, let them look at our lives inside the church and the unity that we have and the love we have for the brethren. And Lord, they say that they are different at Calvary Bible Church. And that's my prayer. Um, Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior. Uh, I pray that you would convict them to believe. Lord, it is by your spirit that we come to know you and to believe. And I pray for the spirit of God to open the eyes of the blind and to see, for them to see their need for Jesus. Thank you for today. Thank you for our church. I love this church. It's my, these are my people. Um, I thank you for the unity that we have and the love for you and love for your word that we have. And we lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.